the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, Irish Times Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary will join me from Brussels to give an update on the latest round of Brexit talks. With the year-end deadline now looming large for an agreement on a trade pack, will it be a case of deal or no deal between the EU and the UK? But we're going to start this week with the search for a vaccine to counter COVID-19. US company Moderna said this week that its vaccine had completed stage 3 trials with a near 95% effective rate. This followed on from the positive announcement last week by Pfizer and BioNTech, who found that their vaccine had a 90% effective rate. So all of this offers the hope that a vaccine could become available sometime next year and allow the world to begin returning to some sort of normality. Joining me on the line to explain how the vaccines will work, the timetable for its distribution and how the markets have reacted to the news are Dominic Coyle of the Irish Times and Ian Hunter, an equity analyst with Cantor Fitzgerald. Now, Dominic Coyle, thank you for joining Inside Business. Some good news on the vaccine front again this week with Moderna coming out uh, with some very positive results on its COVID-19 vaccine. Tell us about that. Yeah, Moderna, US company, has been the second of the vaccine makers to announce initial results, very much initial results, but uh, very positive, showing uh, greater than 94% um, uh, reduction in infections um, with its vaccine as it compared to um, uh, to the, the study group that did not have the vaccine. Uh, that that's good figures. Separately, Pfizer came out last night with additional data, to, safety data, to show that uh, it is it it's um, met the basic endpoints to formally apply for FDA approval. So on two fronts, we've had very good news this this uh, week. Okay, now these are stage uh, three trials. So just just walk us through how these um, trials work and how a company like Moderna or Pfizer how they actually. Um, get along the road towards authorization and getting a vaccine into the market? Well, in, in this case, phase three is the is the, the final human trials end of a, of a vaccine process. This has been a remarkably concentrated and, and fast-tracked uh, vaccine process on this occasion. Normally, these things take years. But phase three is the final level of trial they need to do before they formally apply for approval to use the vaccine in the market. And in this case, these trials have involved around 40,000 um, patients or um volunteers. Um, and in the, for the initial assessment in both cases, the, the, what they wanted to do was wait until they had received um, 90 or 95 infections and to then assess who had, who had been infected, whether it had been from the control group or whether it had been from the group that was in receipt of the, of the vaccine candidate. Um, so that's where both of these, um, these companies have got so far. Um, in two successive weeks, we've got a third one coming down the line, a vaccine being produced by Oxford University in conjunction with AstraZeneca, which is expected to announce its results in the next week or two. Uh, and there are more besides, aren't there? I mean, at one stage, uh, there was talk that there were, I think, more than 30 uh, potentially vaccines in, in the pipeline. There are hundreds. There, there's close to 200 at various stages. Some of them are preclinical. Some of them are formally in the t- clinical trial process. But there's about there's about six or seven that that uh, including ones from China and Russia that uh, are at the phase phase three level now, um. So they're they're close to the the point where they can be can they can apply for approval, um. And they can apply for in the U.S. case for emergency use approval, which again is a fast track process, which might see the first uh, of the U.S. and and vaccines being approved 
before the end of the year. But it would still be a, 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 a applied for before the end of the year, but it would still be the first quarter before you're likely to see approval and second quarter before you're likely to see vaccine coming into, into the market generally, and not just in Ireland, but in the US primarily. In the case of uh, Pfizer and BioNTech, who came out last week with uh, some of their results, they were talking about a 90% efficacy. What, what exactly does that mean? I mean, does that mean, for example, that in 10% of cases it wasn't effective? Yes, effect, effectively. 10% ten, 10% of those who contracted the, the virus during the trial were people who, who were in receipt of the vaccine. Okay. Now, in Hunter, both uh, in the case of uh, Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna this week, um, they all got a big jump in their share price as a result of these uh, positive results in markets. Generally, overall, for a lot of companies, um, saw a big increase uh, in value. There was um, huge momentum behind the markets over the past uh, 10 days or so. Um, so what is this, what is this telling us in, in terms of uh, what should we be deducting from the market reaction? Well, the, the market reaction was quite strong on the first set of results, just because, uh, as Dominic said, the efficacy was so high at 90%. They were quite, uh, results were expected, but it was thought that it would be maybe 70, 75%, and that would have been fine. They were way over that. Uh, so you did see that big jump in, in the, the markets. Uh, they went uh, risk on. Uh, you saw all the kind of tech and the stay-at-home, work-at-home stocks start to come off just because the feeling was that we're getting back to normality or the new normal, as they call it, maybe quicker than was expected. But it has been uh, volatile because then after the Pfizer um, tick up in this in, in shares uh, on the day of the announcement, it then came back again because reality started to... Um, to come into into play, as Dominic was saying, these these uh, have been found to be effective, but there's still a fair lot of time till they actually get to the market. I mean, uh, they still have to be uh, approved, uh, produced, distributed, and actually then um, um, pay, uh, well ourselves um, uh, vaccinated. And it's going to take time. Uh, and for the last six or seven months, when we are looking at the market, we are always looking through 2020. We're always saying. After 2020, things may get back to normal or uh, maybe slightly will be much better. But as the timeline has come through and we've still got that to go, the market is realising it probably has to look through another six months of disruption. Uh, and so there's been pullback every time the, the, the news has come out, positive. Next day tends to be slight pullback in the numbers just because there's a caution. Because we see the COVID numbers are still on the increase. Uh, I think maybe you saw yesterday uh, the white House came out with a report saying that uh, the coronavirus was now aggressively expanding. And they put this out just because it's before the Thanksgiving holidays. And there's a concern that you're going to see even more growth in the the virus numbers uh, over the next few weeks going into uh, the holiday season at the end of the year. So that is holding markets back. And then uh, yesterday, uh, uh, aside from the coronavirus, we had retail sales data out of the U.S., which were marginally weaker than expected, but it was a six-month trend. And it was before the coronavirus lockdowns have come into effect in uh, the States. And so they're expecting probably the November and December readings to be even weaker. And that's what uh, spooked the market yesterday uh, and saw them uh, coming off uh, again. And that's the kind of theme that we have at the moment, just because the short term, we still have to get through uh, the spike in coronavirus cases before we see the vaccine uh, available for general distribution. Dominic, what is the timetable for these vaccines? Let's take the case of uh, Pfizer and BioNTech. And what kind of hoops are they going to have to go through from here? And when might it be delivered to, to people around the world? 
Well, the first tube is regulatory. So that's uh, Pfizer after the announcement last night, after hours last night, they said that they had uh, finally got the safety data, which showed that two months after the, the first candidates were were vaccinated, there's been no uh, serious adverse effects. So now they can apply to the FDA for approval. Uh, Moderna are literally about, about a week behind them, and that's fine. But that process in itself, even expedited, will take a couple of months really to, to do. And then, then you're into the, you know, that's only the, the starting gate. You then have to manufacture these. And yes, there has been a bit of advanced manufacture, but, but you have to manufacture sufficient quantities. You then have to distribute them and apply them. And, and that, there's issues raised there. The Pfizer one has to be kept in an exceptionally low temperature. Now, it can be kept in a roughly a normal fridge temperature for five days, but no more than that. So transporting it from, in, in Ireland's case, from Belgium, uh, where Pfizer will produce their, their European uh, doses, uh, will, will be a challenge in itself. A separate challenge is that you require two doses, which I understand 28 days apart. So first of all, you've got to persuade people to take it, and then you've got to persuade them to come back four weeks later. And a huge number of people, from my experience dealing with these things, seem to feel once they got the first jab, sure, they're covered anyway, or they're mostly covered and they won't bother. But sure, that could undermine the whole process anyway. So they reckon, I think some some reports in the US have reckoned that it could be as late as 2024 before you see the entire population vaccinated. And apart from all that, of course, you've cost. Because these all cost different different amounts. The Moderna vaccine appears to be the most expensive. Um, the Pfizer one slightly less. So Pfizer looks like being about $20 a dose. Uh, the Moderna one will be, at the moment, it's pricing about $37 to $39 a dose. But the big, big uh, deals they'll do with the EU and the US will probably be closer to mid-20s. Um, but you have other candidates like AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson look like pricing. They're different types of vaccines and they've still to come through the full process. They look like pricing closer to 10 um, And there's a Sanofi uh, GSK one, which might be even lower. But that's in part because uh, you then have the issue of who accepts liability. And in the case of the Sanofi GSK one, it appears that the outline deal they've done with the EU so far seems to suggest that the EU would accept liability for anything that went wrong in that. Um, so therefore, they're paying considerably less uh, for, for the actual um, the actual vaccine, assuming it hits, beats all its hurdles. Uh, so there's lots of little, little hurdles there yet. It, I wouldn't expect that anyone in Ireland is going to see much vaccine before the middle of the year at best. Then it's a case of who gets it first, and that's a discussion that's ongoing with the public health people. But before the likes of you and me get it, um, I wouldn't be hoping for next year. I think we've another winter to to survive through before we can confidently look to receiving a vaccine. Okay, well, that's something to look forward to. And just in terms of the Irish situation, is this something that's going to be paid for by the public health system? Or will some people have to pay for their own vaccines? And just picking up your point as well, that you've got to persuade, uh, you're going to have to persuade some people to get the vaccine. Why would you need to persuade anyone to get this uh, vaccine, given the havoc that COVID has has wreaked um, this year? There's been um, there's been a, a, there's a permanent um, undertow of uh, sentiment against vaccines generally and concern about their use. Um, and on social media in the last year or so, that's become a particular problem. Uh, you also, in Ireland's case, have the recent experience of the swine flu vaccine and some of the things that went wrong there. Um, and that has created issues for people in terms of their their keenness or their their um, enthusiasm to be at the front of any queue for this vaccine. Uh, you would thought it's, it's a no-brainer. The disruption caused by COVID has been immense, um, both in economic terms and in physical terms for those who have, who have actually contracted it. 
Um, but it's 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 still going to be a challenge. Even in existing vaccines, the government has been been battling to get vaccination levels back up towards the, the towards the ninety percent level. Um, and it was falling below seventy percent there not so long ago, which is a real problem in terms of even flu and things like that. But the same problems will will be inevitable for this COVID vaccine. Ian Hunter, how much are companies like Pfizer um, and Moderna going to make out of a COVID vaccine? Yes, that's a very interesting question. Uh, the bottom line is, I mean, our, our Cantor pharmaceutical team in New York were very clear that first to market may not actually be the one that's going to be the, the market leader in the end. And Dominic has given a list of companies that are still working on it. And there are most of the large pharma cap, uh, large cap companies have a, a vaccine in the pipeline. How much are they going to make? The bottom line is that most of them have said that for most, most of the production will be uh, at cost. It's not for profit. So what they'll be doing is it may be slightly more than the, uh, the production costs because they're going to have to cover all the R&D costs that, that are up front that have already been uh, um, uh, committed to date. So they'll have to cover that. But it, it, it isn't like a blockbuster coming to the market, whereas before we'd be discussing the fact that you could be making a large amount of money out of this. I think because it's a humanitarian effort and it's a worldwide effort because they're going to have to produce this vaccine and distribute it worldwide, there's two things. One, you need more than one vaccine. And both uh, Pfizer and Moderna have come out and said they are looking forward to as many uh, being positive as possible because there's going to be an awful large, large market. But secondly, as you were saying about whether they're going to make money, um, uh, the, the potential for them to make uh, a large amount of money out of this is not the same as if it was a blockbuster. They will be looking to recoup costs. I think probably uh, the indication is that in, in the States and be in Western Europe, they will look to make some profit. But given that it's a global situation and you're going to have to be supplying <coughs> into developing countries, uh, they will be doing that at cost. So it isn't the same uh, as a normal drug development or vaccine development program where you're looking for large profits. Uh, the companies that have got it, have, you will have seen from the share price, have the kudos of getting a, a, a vaccine to the market, but not the uh, the market benefit. Right. Um, Dominic, just in terms of um, the administration of, of all of this, I mean, is this a vaccine that's going to have to be administered on an annual basis, like the flu vaccine? Is the hope that COVID will burn itself out and that this might only be needed for uh, for a few years? Or what's the what's the picture looking like in that regard? I'm sure the government does hope that it'll burn itself out, but it's most unlikely. Uh, getting back to a point you raised earlier, it's not clear at this stage who's going to pay for this. Um, initially, the, the government still has to decide. I expect initially there will be um, less private charging, but uh, on the assumption that COVID is something we're going to be living with down the line, I expect like other vaccines, certain people will pay for it and others who are on medical, medical supports will not pay for it. Um, as to immunity, the, the there's still very early stages of doing tests on how long vaccines, uh, any of these vaccines, give you immunity. But um, the early figures don't look outstanding. They look like about six months. So that would seem to mean that you're going to be getting this vaccine every year uh, or one of these vaccines every year. There are obviously, as, as Ian said, there are lots more vaccine candidates coming through, uh, including from the likes of Merck and that who are big in vaccines. You know, so maybe maybe some of the vaccines will grant you better immunity than others. Uh, some will have better safety profiles. There's a lot, to, awful lot to be learned yet. But as of now, we're looking at a scenario where people are going to be uh, vaccinated each year on the basis of the information we know to date. And um, whether they pay for that or not, once we get over the initial pandemic, will be down to government decision, as indeed will be the decision by companies as to whether to what to charge for it. I mean, some of the companies, Moderna has, has said that they are in this for profit. 
uh, although they are supported by the US Operation Warp Speed, so they may be limited initially in what they can do. AstraZeneca have said they won't, they'll go for cost on this initial pandemic, but they very clearly haven't said that beyond that. And and the same is likely for some of the other candidates. Um, and you then have commitments to, to the, um, the COVAX um, worldwide um, initiative to try to get cost vaccine to emerging and developing economies. So that, that'll feed into it too. Uh, but there's an, we really are just in the foothills. There's been some great news this week, but um, we're a long way before before people can say we've actually got a full handle on, on COVID-19. And in terms of Ireland, we seem to be in a good place, at least whenever a vaccine does become available, because we're part of a European Union programme, aren't we, to buy these uh, vaccines rather than doing it ourselves, which uh, might have put us in the middle of the queue, at least. No, we're, we're very, being part of the EU, as as we're finding it, is very much to our benefit in this case. Um, the EU deals will be distributed pro rata, we understand. For us, we've got just over 1% of the EU population, so we will get just over 1% of the the supplies available under these uh, these various deals that the EU have done. The EU have done deals with uh, Pfizer. They've got uh, an outline deal with Moderna that has to be confirmed. They have deals in one form or another outline or confirmed with the other main vaccines that are at the late pro- late stages of, of uh, the trial process. Uh, so we're in a good position in that way, but um, but there's still not enough vaccines at all to uh, to meet demand at the moment and even looking through 2021 it doesn't look like there'll be full supplies of vaccines to to inoculate the full population. In what's your view on the markets for for next year um obviously covid is still going to be with us in some shape or form um a lot of stocks have been hammered you know airlines and um hospitality stocks and, and so forth do, we, do you see a recovery in those maybe next year or or what's your view? The, the markets are going to be waiting at the start because, uh, as I said earlier, you're going to see the uh, the impact of the COVID-19 is going to go throughout into the, at least the first half of the year because we're not going to get a vaccine out there. That was positive, but the, the reality is that we're we're still sitting with, with the disease and we're still going to have to uh, hold with it uh, until at least the first half of the year. I think the markets are going to be cautious on that. I think any news that uh, you're going to get... Um, the timeline uh, reduced. We'll see uh, all these stocks that have been hit hard. And you did mention the ones that we would say were, were the ones that will get the, the best recovery are the airlines and the, the travel and leisure sector, etc., because they have been hit hard. Any sign that that can start to open up again, uh, we'll see those stocks start to rally. Yeah, and Dominic, finally, um, will any of these vaccines be made in Ireland? Uh, there's a big pharma industry here. There is a big pharma industry. We're not necessarily as big in vaccines. Merck, certainly our MSD, as they are over here, uh, do have a vaccines plant down in Carlo. Uh, we don't know yet whether whether that'll have any part of play in the long term. Uh, what we'll do, Pfizer are going to do the quality control for the European vaccine supplies out of Belgium will be done at Grange Castle. So that, that'll be, be work there for, for, for the Grange Castle site. Um. So beyond that, in direct, in direct vaccine production terms, we just don't know of any other positives as of yet. Um, but equally, if, if a lot of other plants are diverting resources into vaccine development and into this sort of science, it may be that there are knock-on impacts in other projects or other parts of other projects, especially in the R&D level, being, being moved to, to Irish sites. So that might help. Yeah, sure. And of course, there has been a very strong export performance by multinationals in Ireland this year, which has, which has helped uh, to balance the books somewhat. Indeed. Yeah, okay, all right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dominic Coyle and Ian Hunter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be joined by Naomi O'Leary for an update on the Brexit trade talks. 
At Davy, we know your well-being should be financial as well as personal. And now when it's a little more challenging, if you're in a position where you have a pension, it's never been more important to get active. So talk to one of our trusted advisors now and we can help you find a solution for your pension needs. A solution that could help you feel better about your financial future. Let's start the conversation. Call us today or search Davy. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, Trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. I'm joined now from Brussels by Naomi O'Leary, your correspondent of the Irish Times, for the latest on the Brexit trade talks. Now, Naomi O'Leary uh, joins us from Brussels. Naomi, thank you for joining Inside Business. Um, the Brexit talks resumed in Brussels this week. They seem to have been going on forever and ever. A lot of people are bored by it, but very important negotiations nonetheless. Um, tell us where they're at and has there been any breakthrough? So both sides are essentially giving signals that if there is going to be a breakthrough, it'll be sometime in about the next seven days. That's what um, both sides seem to be saying. Um, Now, is there going to be a breakthrough is a big question because there remain, it seems, you know, very serious divergences in the positions of each side. Um, So they're giving it their best shot. The EU national leaders are supposed to meet over a video conference tomorrow. And there had been hopes at one stage that they might be able to have something to talk about in relation to Brexit. Uh, if there was something that, you know, might be a bit contentious that they could resolve it then. Uh, but it's not on the agenda because there hasn't been that breakthrough yet. Uh, so they're going to be talking about COVID-19 and also the problems in the budget and recovery fund. Um, so the scenario is now that the chief EU negotiator, Michel Barnier, is going to give an update to the member states. He's expected to do that on Friday. Uh, As it stands, I find it hard to imagine that he won't come out and say the stuff that he always comes out and says, which is that we're very concerned and there hasn't been enough movement. But, you know, perhaps the next 24 hours could produce a surprise. Uh, If there is going to be some kind of a breakthrough, perhaps it would be early next week that we would hear about it, uh, maybe Monday. But time is very, very short because after all, this needs to be passed in the European Parliament and it could be need ratification by member states depending on uh, whether the member states decide it's entirely EU competences or if it strays into national competences as well. And events in the EU in the last week have showed that you can't discount political surprises. Yeah, what are the remaining uh, sticking points in these negotiations? So the big one that's been mentioned uh, in recent weeks is fisheries. Um, The position of the UK is that uh, since its economic zone of control of its waters was defined in recent years, that it wants to have full control over access to those waters. Now, fishing rights and traditions of shared fishing grounds go back a lot longer than that. There's fishing communities all over Uh, Europe, particularly in places like France, Denmark, Ireland, that have been fishing in UK waters for a very long time. Um, And of course, fish stocks cross uh, boundaries um, in terms of national control. So they can be spawned in one place and go and mature in another place. So it's it's quite normal for states to have agreements about sharing out the uh, where those fish are are caught in order to kind of keep the stocks sustainable for everybody. Um, but yeah, the EU, uh, the UK has taken 
one hardline position, which is what they they want total control over all of those waters, which is a massive chunk in the middle of the waters traditionally fished by EU fishermen, um, and that they would grant access based on yearly negotiations. And the EU has also taken a hardline position in the opposite direction, which is essentially that it wants nothing to change. Um, both sides really are a bit extreme. So everyone has been saying, you know, there's going to have to be a compromise here. The EU is going to have to compromise. It's not going to be exactly as it was before. But equally, you know, the UK does need to give something too because after all the fish caught by UK fishermen things like mackerel aren't actually eaten very much by people in Britain they need to be exported to other markets places like Spain in particular uh, so really you know it does make sense for both sides both sides to come to an agreement on that the other areas are governance so um what authority decides if there's been a breach in this deal What's the arbitrating authority in that case? Obviously, Britain wants to take back control and doesn't want to be subject to any decisions by, let's say, the European courts or something like that. So that's been contentious because the EU says there is only one authority that can decide matters of EU law, and that's the ECJ. So that's the sticking point there. And then the third one is, of course, the level playing field, which is a kind of um, jargon, jargony word. But what it essentially means is that the companies in the UK uh, could be given more favourable uh, op- rules and regulations than EU ones. So, for example, they could get help from the government in terms of cheap electricity. They could have environmental and labour protection slashed, any number of things. And the EU says, well, if you do that, then we're going to erect barriers to trade so that those UK companies don't uh, undercut or with cheaper produce are EU businesses. So what the EU wants is for there to be uh, equal competition on both sides in terms of the business environment. Um, And there has to be, that's actually quite a complicated issue, how to guarantee that, who sets the rules, how are they decided, and if things change going forward, how is it monitored, what happens if one side strays. So that's a really contentious issue because, of course, the UK wants to set rules for itself and so on going forward. Yeah, now... I mean, time is running out. This is supposed to be done by the end of this year, so only weeks left. And what happens on January 1st if we don't get a deal? Well, on January 1st, what businesses should know is that there's going to be a lot of change either way. So trade in and out of the UK uh, will involve customs declarations. A lot of businesses don't seem to have absorbed that yet, but that is the reality and it's not going to change. Um, If there isn't a deal, things will, there'll be more disruption. So there will be tariffs that come into place, um, quite significant tariffs on things like um, meat and dairy, uh, important industries for Ireland, of course, that could potentially make them uncompetitive in the in, in British markets. Um, that's a big concern. Also, you know, it goes, it actually is more profound of an issue than simply trade. Uh, the legal relationship between the EU and its former member covers everything from the mutual recognition of driving licenses to, you know, mobile phone roaming to even like passenger rights on aeroplanes, the ability of planes to land and so on. Um, All of this legal basis for the relationship would kind of abruptly dissolve overnight if there wasn't a deal. And that uh, would require a lot of emergency legislation at the last minute to smooth things over to ensure things like flights could still go between Britain and the EU, for example. Um, and it, there's, there would be a lot of disruption, probably will be disruption either way. Another thing that people are very concerned about is if there's a no deal, that's just a very negative, contentious outcome. And there is it means there's no forum to resolve issues going forward. So if there's problems among the fishermen, let's say, uh, let's say 
Irish fishermen, uh, French fishermen are suddenly blocked from British waters, but they decide to venture in and start taking fish anyway. I mean, that's not an impossibility. Like, that's not something that, you know, anyone would find hard to imagine. How is that kind of dispute resolved? If there's no deal, um, it's really difficult to firefight problems like that, which are bound to arise in all kinds of different areas. It just means there's a really contentious relation, uh, like basis for the relationship going forward that doesn't spell um, good things to come. Naomi, how prepared is the EU and Ireland in particular for a no-deal Brexit? I mean, the government will say that, you know, we're much better prepared than we were before because, after all, it's not the first time that we've been marched up this hill. This happened before and there were lots of contingency plans put in place and drawn up. And then about July, say, sometime in the summer, they started to dust off those plans again because it looked like, you know, things weren't progressing in the way that they hoped. Um, So... Um, they say, you know, we've done everything we can to prepare, but they're always urging businesses to check out their supply chains to figure out what will they need to comply with in terms of uh, customs and so on from January 1st. And the European Commission has released a document which shows basically this is what you need to do in any case. This is what you need to do sector by sector, regardless of whether a deal is reached or not. And on the other hand, uh, this is what you might have to do if there isn't a deal. Um, I've been speaking to a lot of logistics firms and haulage companies and transport companies over the last uh, week or two. And the impression that I get is that it's a lot of people in the UK and Ireland are not that prepared. Um, a part of the reason is that they don't have the full information yet, which is fair enough, particularly anyone who's trans- uh, transporting goods in and out of Northern Ireland still doesn't know the practicalities of how the Northern Ireland protocol is going to work. So they say, well, tell us what we need to prepare for. But there is a lot that can be known. Uh, There are a few details that aren't known yet, but a a lot can be known. Um, And then there's the other, uh, on the continent, there's the other side where people are are trying to move things into uh, Britain and the island of Ireland. Um, And one of the difficulties is that, for example, the new uh, technology system that the UK has brought in to handle uh, this kind of trade, to handle customs and so on, doesn't actually kick in until January the 1st itself. So you can't even have like a dress rehearsal to, you know, practice using it and figure out, uh, will it work? So there's absolutely certain to be disruption from January 1st. Of course, ironically, because of COVID, there isn't much air travel going on at the minute, is there? So uh, maybe um, flights uh, not being able to go from the UK to the EU and, and vice versa, it, it mightn't be as damaging as it, as it otherwise uh, would have been. Just in terms of the border, you mentioned it there. Um, what In a no-deal scenario, um, what's it going to look like? Because we know that the British government, with their internal markets bill, um, sort of overturned some of the provisions that were in the withdrawal agreement with the European Union. So what are we looking at in terms of the, the flow of um, trade and goods north and south in the no-deal scenario from January 1, let's say, if it comes to that? Well, I mean, under international law, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol has already been agreed um, and that has all these provisions which are designed to avoid the appearance of a border across the island of Ireland. Um Now, the UK has uh, began passing the Internal Markets Bill, which would unpick parts of that um, and admitting itself that this was against international law. That hasn't completed its passage uh, through um, the House of Lords. It goes back to the House of Commons. There's a whole uh, sort of procedure there that has to be completed. So it's it's not actually law yet. It's not finalised yet. Um, So as things stand, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol is you know, the law. Um, 
if there is a no deal, it will be more difficult uh, for the checks that have to come into place between the islands anyway. There'll be additional checks. And some of these things are extremely cumbersome in any case. So things like uh, checks on goods of animal origin are really quite um, you know, they're quite thorough. They're very, very different from what businesses have been dealing with so far. And they and you know, the Northern Ireland Executive has said that the facilities to do these will not be ready by January 1st. And supermarkets in Northern Ireland have also warned that they won't be able to um, stock this exactly the same products on their shelves unless there's some sort of special, I don't know, opt-out or something, especially for supermarkets, which is what they've been pushing for. Um, so there's going to be change um, from January 1st. There's still a few moving parts. Of course, the kind of nightmare scenario from the uh, Irish government's point of view is if the British government kind of totally went rogue and said, well, we're not going to do any of this. We're not going to enforce any of these checks. We're totally resigning from the whole Northern Ireland protocol that there won't be any of this. And, you know, trade is just going to be allowed to go into the North uh, without any checks. And in that case, it would force the dilemma again, where the Irish government would have to choose how to um ensure the safety of the EU single market. But there's a lot of, uh, and, and that would, you know, that would mean there would have to be checks somewhere. Where did they go? And the whole issue about the border is opened up again. Um, however, I think that the feeling is that there's a lot more steps that could be taken before things got to that point. Um, so there's more pressure points. It's not something that would dramatically happen on January 1st. Um, and hopefully that things could be resolved before it got to that point. After all, both sides say that they don't want a border across the island of Ireland. So so what's the absolute cutoff point for these negotiations, Naomi? Well, it's passed. I mean, the, they used to say that the absolute cutoff point was the first week of November, and that's long past. Um, I mean, this week we had a senior diplomat in the EU saying that it might be too late already um, for, you know, whatever deal, if there is a deal, comes out of these talks to go through like uh, its proper um, uh, ratification and implementation. Uh, so, you know, it's possible that it's already too late. Um kind of in terms of the deadlines coming up, uh, initially a vote on the deal in the European Parliament had been sort of penciled in for December 16th. Um, it looks difficult for that to, to happen now. After all, this deal is going to be hundreds and hundreds of pages long. It has to be translated into languages that all the MEPs can understand. Uh, so, you know, the translation of hundreds and hundreds of pages of legalese into other languages takes time. It's also important that it's scrutinised. I mean, this is, you know, this is an important part of policy making that the representatives of the citizens actually take a look at this thing and see, you know, is there, are there implications of this thing? Um, and then, uh, you know, as I was saying, it's possible that national parliaments may want to say as well, although I understand that their votes could be deferred to next year. So it could be kind of provisionally applied. And then later on, uh, the, the, the the approval could technically be given. Um, but um, what, there is all sorts of um, possibilities for surprises, you know, and a member state could take issue with it or they could decide to say that they're going to block it for their own reasons. Um, also, if these things are rushed 
you know, it doesn't make for the best law. And arguably, you could say this is what happened with the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, all of these like practical difficulties are coming up with it now in terms of supermarkets warning that it's just not possible to to kind of implement this thing as intended without cause, without severe consequences for Northern Ireland consumers. Um, and, you know, that that was something that was a rushed deal that was a last minute like political solve. Uh, because of, you know, previous deals had been ruled out by the likes of the DUP and so on. Um, and, you know, there's absolutely the case that for this massively complex deal might not be the best one if it's all rushed like this. Um, so, you know, there's there's consequences even if a deal is reached. And finally, Naomi, there are some high-profile resignations in Downing Street um, last, uh, last week, including Dominic Cummins, who was obviously the chief strategist behind the vote leave um, back in 2016, which led to Brexit, obviously. Has that changed the mood music in relation to these negotiations? Has it softened uh, the UK's stance? I think Westminster is a little bit mysterious to everybody. You know, um, there's always speculation about what's really going on in the mind of Boris Johnson or is it Dominic Cummings you know is this all a sort of a grand plan that they're doing there's always sort of uh, different theories about whether something's deliberate or is it incompetence or is it accidental you know these kind of things Um, I don't think people really know exactly Um, Downing Street has been briefing now that actually you know Boris Johnson is the real hardliner and he won't sign off on anything you know that uh, interferes with UK sovereignty or however they might put it. Um, So, you know, I think it's anyone's guess, really. Perhaps only Boris Johnson knows himself. There definitely was a change in mood uh, when the Democratic candidate Joe Biden won the presidential election in the United States, however, because of his outspoken support for the Good Friday Agreement and his criticism that he and also his Democratic Party colleagues had expressed after the introduction of the Internal Markets Bill, that was seen as a bit of a sea change that potentially isolates the UK internationally and might give pause for thought in terms of uh, going for a no deal and passing that Internal Markets Bill. Okay, well, we'll see how this uh, plays out, uh, Naomi, and no doubt we'll have you back on Inside Business before Christmas um, to see if we have a deal or no deal or what the consequences of either might be. Naomi O'Leary, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Dominic Coyle, Ian Hunter and Naomi O'Leary. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe.